Welcome to the, welcome to the Truth to Power Show on Radio Free Brooklyn. I'm your host VJR Nathan, and with us today is co-host Colt Malson. Welcome, Colt. Hey, how are you doing? Hi, hi. Um, so now uh, with us is special guest Nadia Q Ahmed Ahmad. Um, so Nadia, um, let me just pull up her bio one second. Um, Nadia is a poet, writer, and editor. Her work has appeared in publications such as The Shoreline Review, Poets and Writers Magazine, AWW's The Margins, and she has received awards from Aspen Words and the Fine Arts Work Center. She's a Vona uh, Voices and Quelly Journal Workshop alum and also facilitates various work- writing workshops of her own. Born and raised in New York City, Nadia is of Bangladeshi descent, currently lives in Queens. Professional roles have included program associate at the American, at the Asian American Writers Workshop, and the editors fellows at Poets and Writers. She currently serves on the editorial board of the Queensbound Collaborative Poetry Project. Welcome, Nadia. So I was asking the question about your obsessions and uh, some of the themes that go through your writing. Uh, please go ahead and, and tell us a little bit about that. Yeah. Um. Thank. Thanks again for having me. It's really nice to be able to talk on a Sunday morning about writing obsessions. <laughs> I guess. Um, so one of the things that comes to mind in a more timely way is um, I'm currently observing Ramadan, um, the month of fasting that Muslims observe. Um, and the one of the kind of really wonderful pleasures about um, the way that I've been able to tie this into my writing practice has been to connect with a group of poets um, online over the past few years. Um, who we all try to write a poem a day for Ramadan. Um, some years it's more difficult than others. I'd say that, you know, during the pandemic, it's been a bit more difficult than other years, um, but it's really nice to have that support. So I think um, some a theme that comes back um, over and over again for me is, you know, what is the connection between like mind, body and spirit? Um, how can I access that through poetry, if at all? Um, and one of the anchors in that, one of the other anchors in that practice for me um, has been to read um, this book called uh, Fasting for Ramadan by Kazim Ali, who's a, um, a poet as well. And um, that book is divided into little daily sections, uh, which are entries for each day of Ramadan that he has done over two, uh, two separate um, times of that month in his life and publish them in a collection. So um, it's, you know, besides just the theme of that month and what it means for me to observe it um, as a person who is Muslim in America, as a person who is just Muslim, um, besides that, it's also been nice to try to understand um like what are also the many ways that we divide up time you know this practice is daily but within the day i try to break it up into your body kind of does this weird thing where like suddenly you're not having food or water and so you have to understand time in a different way and i think poetry um poetry also helps me do that too helps me understand time in lots of different ways rather than just the linear one uh that we you know, the, the like, you know, 12 a.m. back to 11.59 p.m. kind of linear uh, cycle. So, um, yeah, right now, obsessions have been Ramadan, fasting, um, food, and time. Great, great. 
And uh, if you tell us a little bit about Queensbound that you run, uh, that you're on the editorial board of, yeah. Yeah, Queensbound is a great um, collaborative project. I think another theme that comes up in my writing a lot, um, sometimes not necessarily in the content of the writing itself, but in the way that I approach writing is collaboration and how do we write in groups and is that even possible? Um, because so many people think about writing as like a solitary um, action, which it is. Uh, but I think there are lots of ways to bring writing into um, group spaces that help, you know, more than just one person. So Queensbound is one of those projects. It's a um, collaborative poetry project uh, started by um, a bunch of, uh, well, Casey Tromer, who's another um, Queens-based poet, and uh, has featured a few iterations of um writing by poets from Queens and each one of them it's called Queensbound because it refers to the subway um you know the Queensbound subway um and on the website queensbound.com you'll see a map that uh at each stop or the goal is to get at each stop station stop in Queens um uh, an audio recording of a poem by a Queens-based poet ideally you know about the poem being about that neighborhood so that's a really, um, it's a really cool project. We've been able to uplift the voices of a lot of different writers and different perspectives in Queens. Um, and, you know, you hear really like all of the different languages of Queens in the way that um, people uh, experience the borough um, on so many different levels. So it's, it's been a really nice uh, experience to have my work published on there myself and also to help get other Queens based uh, poets, you know, up there too. And so we're hoping to expand. So if you're listening and you're a Queens based poet, um, check out queensbound.com and try to, you know, follow the prompts to contact us. If you, if you're interested. Is it a specific uh, subway line, like the seven train? Cause I know like the seven train, you get Woodside, Jackson Heights, Flushing, and you know, a lot of different things, but there are, yeah, is it this? Is it all the subways, or is it mostly the seven line? Yeah, it's all of the subways. The map will show all of the subways um, that are located in Queens. So okay. you've got yeah everything from what you said: the seven, the EFMR, the A, um, the N, Q, um, the J. I was about to say W. I haven't been yeah. on the train in the, so long. The J and the A. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So one of the things that we were talking about in the pre-interview questions. Uh, was about, uh, you know, I was asking about what is your most passionate about in your life. And you said uh, you're fascinated by language, specifically in the subjectivity of language, and also how um, etymologies and roots and origins of, of languages. Uh, so tell us a little bit about what, you know, and the specific thing you said was what does it invoke for me versus what it invokes for you. Uh, these may be different things. So tell us a little bit about that and how, um, as a writer, you're able to navigate subjectivity, you know, writing both from, your perspective, but also taking into account how the reader has their own subjective experience of the writing. Yeah. Yeah, that's a great question. Um, yeah, I because I'm so fascinated with roots, I think the, the kind of um, conundrum or the challenge in writing sometimes and thinking about subjectivity is that when you have roots, you obviously or, you know, theoretically, you're supposed to also have branches. Um, And so I think writing um, from my position of subjectivity, if I try too fast to go from like the root of what I'm trying to say, 
um, in the writing process to, so said another way, if I try to kind of go too fast from grounding myself in what I'm trying to say to grounding myself in what somebody else wants to hear or read, um, sometimes that's where I think it gets challenging because I'm trying to hold lots of different subjectivities at once. Um, and that can get challenging if you do it, I think, too early in the process, because it, for me, it means that I'm getting stuck by, um, you know, think of centering what other people think um, before my own subjectivity. So one of the ways I think in my writing process, I come back to that is if I'm getting stuck and I'm um, maybe censoring myself and not letting myself write, you know, the truth the truth to whatever power I'm trying to write through, um, I go back to like one of the really useful tools that I, I, I've come to use a lot is going back to the root of a particular theme or emotion that I'm writing about or a specific word. And I think that helps me really ground myself in, um, you know, what, it, what does the work mean for me? Because if, if I, think, I think if I can clearly identify what a work or the impetus of a piece of writing is for me, um, the, the more clearly I can identify that, the better service I will be to a reader um, or the work will be to a reader because then they can clearly understand where I'm coming from with it and therefore we can have a better dialogue, um, if that makes sense. So yeah, subjectivity is, is hard to balance, but um, going back to the roots of things or the etymologies of things can help me both ground myself and discover new ways to think about what I'm what I'm trying to put on the page. So you kind of give yourself prompts a little bit, like a, a word or a theme, and then you then you write a, a poem about it. Is that kind of the, the process? Yeah, yeah. Um, a lot of times, a word or a theme. Um, sometimes a word or a theme will come up, or the image. You know, I'll be walking around and see see an image and just note it down and then i think um the root can be anything from what is the actual linguistic root of this word that i'm so drawn to or like what is the you know roots can i think be thought of in a different way which is what is the root of my interest even like why did i even notice this i think um as poets as writers as any kind of creative person you have to practice um, noticing things. And after you, you know, get the hang of and build up the muscle of noticing things, you have to then, the, the work of the artist is to then um, try to convey why it is that you noticed that thing somehow. So yeah, the, the prompts um, are anything from the roots of the words to just Wow, why was that so fascinating to me? Um, yeah. Yeah, you talked a little bit about creating a room for your own. So uh, that comes with the Virginia Woolf, I guess, novel, yeah. Room for One's Own. So, uh, yeah, and tell us a little bit about how you create space for noticing and for observation. And, you know, especially in these times and days where this constant culture of distraction, you know, a constant culture of clicking here, clicking there. Uh, do you feel that you're working against that tendency or do you feel like that kind of works to your advantage or how do you manipulate those tendencies we have to kind of be distraction culture? Yeah, that's a really, <laughs> that's a really good question. It's, um, 
I think what I'll say about the conflicting, you know, um, divided attention is that um, a, the, the room of my own that I referred to um, is, is the writing studio that I've been able to um, have the means recently to rent out. Um, and before that, I tried to carve out space in my, you know, where, where I live and in my room at my desk um, to do most of my writing or, you know, when it was more possible, like at the library or at coffee shops and things like that. Um, and I think having uh, this opportunity to have a space entirely dedicated for the work um, has helped me shut off the things, the other things that divide my attention. One of the biggest things of which is like you mentioned, you know, social media or the internet or like just the news or something, um, all these methods of communication. On the one hand, I think that can be a useful tool for the collaboration I was talking about earlier. Mm -hmm. um, you know, it definitely has helped get awareness raised for, um, you know, even things like like the Truth Through Power podcast or yeah. Queensbound. Um, but in a lot of ways, I do think I'm working against that a little bit because, again, what I mentioned before about roots, um, sometimes I, you know, if I'm on Instagram or something or Twitter, like the mindset that I necessarily, I, I, I don't necessarily want the mindset of um, centering what other people will think about my work, even before I begin to write a draft. You know, I don't think that that's helpful. I think that's fairly debilitating so that's where it that's where it becomes challenging for me um and this uh writing space or a writing space in whatever way I try to create it um is you know has become very helpful for tuning that stuff out the one other thing I'll the thing I'll say about this is that um you know during the pandemic I, I had started renting the space out right before the pandemic started so it was really timely um but when it when it isn't or when I don't feel safe enough to go to the studio because it's um it's you know not not like walking distance from my house or anything uh, when it's not safe enough what I do do is try to take walks in my neighborhood um in Queens I live in East Elmhurst and um I feel like that's also really useful for um you know, balancing or re reuniting my attention that's become divided because it helps me kind of carve out a space or create a little room of my own in my own schedule during the day that says like, you don't have to be doing anything right now. Just take a 15 minute walk or a 30 minute walk and practice the noticing. Sometimes I'll just walk and don't even, you know, write. I think there's a lot of versions of non-writing writing that we do um, that it's important to carve out space for. So that's that's the other way I think uh, that I've been able to tune out some of this, some of the you know com competing and conflicting motives that social media brings up um, is by by taking walks as well. Yeah, I think it's good to kind of disconnect a little bit. Like if it's like you know turn their phone off when you write or or you know go for a walk. I think um, yeah, I think it's, it's a good good way to you know, focus is just turn it off, turn your computer off, you know, for, for whatever time you want to, you know, do something else. Yeah. When you think about nature and being of nature and being in nature, 
you know, we become so disconnected from nature, we become so disconnected from our essential natures, and, uh, you know, as well as our, our uh, connectivity to the body, and as you are saying about mind, body, spirit, and our connection to the body and connection to having, and that connection will create a healthy experiential mind. Um, you know, there's so many different philosophies about, you know, mind, body, and spirit, about the soul and about the, the idea of the, the mind, body problem, um, you know, kind of like how we navigate. But I think all of us agree that, you know, being embodied is important, like, you know, being able to embody that, that philosophy so that then we, we're kind of actualizing in, in real time our, our, like, more heady, if you will, uh, thoughts. You know, we're kind of settled into the, the, the ground roots, if you will. Mm. Yeah, yeah. So you're talking a little bit about in your um, stuff about how the, when I asked you the question or I'm asking you the question now, uh, you know, essential truths that are undervalued by society uh, you're talking a little bit about how there's room for everyone and we have that place of abundance really is what we're coming from, you know, and, and tell us a bit more about how that impacts you and how uh, how coming from a place of abundance perhaps is perhaps your, uh, perhaps what I got out of your answer at least. Yeah. 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 That, that's a great, that's a great reading of that answer. And I think also I definitely, <coughs> excuse me. <coughs> oh, excuse me. Um, I definitely agree with the idea of <clears throat> when we're disconnected from nature. <coughs> Sorry. Uh, that's okay. Um, when we're... <clears throat> when we're disconnected from nature, we're also disconnected from our... Um, essential nature <clears throat> yeah and i think that 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 um that leads me to think about the essential truth right the uh, abundance is such a good reading of um what i named is that essential truth that i think is undervalued in society um and it's been something that I myself have, um, I think actually only adopted as a mindset much more recently mm. in my life because of, because all these forces like, um, you know, social media and divided attention um, do promote this, mindset that operates from the centering of mostly if not all kind of oppressive forces capitalism ableism racism um <coughs> misogyny <coughs> homophobia all of those things classism they they teach us that um you know we i think i think by kind of teaching us that we are not enough as we are. Um, they really, you know, that that's just so debilitating. Um, and when, when you ask the question of the essential truth that I believe is undervalued in society, I think it's like literally undervalued. You know, the idea of scarcity is 
much more valued even on just like an economic sense mm. where we're told that we must you know buy this thing or be this particular standard of person um because what we are in this moment in and of ourselves essentially um is not enough so <clears throat> the this is this is one of the things that I think is is really difficult for me to talk about sometimes because um, it is I've only been even telling myself this you know very um, almost like strictly <laughs> more much more recently in my life um, but what I think is coming out of it for me is the ability to say you know, almost like make it till I fake it. Like I try to tell myself that the scarcity isn't helpful on a regular basis so that even on the days that I don't really believe it, um, that hopefully like I'll just turn it into like, you know, a regular practice and then be able to operate from it. Um, and the other thing I'll say about this is one of the ways that, you know, like if your question is that the essential truth that I believe it to be undervalued in society, um, if I'm naming that truth, then hopefully the next step is to figure out how do I make it more valuable mm. in, in other people's eyes. And one of the ways I'm trying to do that is just, you know, besides just naming it to myself on a regular basis, um, also trying to name it to other people, like people I um, participate in workshops with, or, you know, when I'm teaching or something like that. So I think those are two ways, you know, both on the individual and the collective level that I'm trying to kind of reclaim, um, that idea and bring real value to it. Yeah. One thing I want to bring together was the idea of what your idea previously, you were talking about noticing and, and, and giving yourself space to notice and how, um, you know, our processes are really like the process of digestion. So we're, of taking in all this input and we're kind of taking a moment to meditate on it. We're taking some time in our life to, to um, think about it and digest it. And then ultimately our writing is kind of like that byproduct of that um, process, but also like uh, the process also releases things or letting go of things. And you discussed in one of them questions, I think it was uh, um, how, how you're able to empower yourself. So you're just discussing that. So how specific truth acts as a way for your empowerment, how that truth um, helps you to feel more powerful. And you mentioned about letting go, the act of letting go or releasing. And, you know, um, I mean, some people think compare writing to like excretion, excreting, but uh, like feces. But I like to think of it as manure. You know, I like think of it as manure because when we when we when we read things, we're kind of fertilizing our souls. So yeah. in the sense of like creating crops of realizations that we can get to. So if you talk a little bit more about your, your views on letting go and releasing and releasing what doesn't serve you, all this kind of stuff. Yeah. Yeah. I really like that metaphor of the, um, of the manure. I think fertilization is a really apt image. <coughs> Excuse me. Um, <clears throat> the, because it has to be cyclical, right? Like it's not, um, it, it has to, or I don't want to say it has to, but I think it, it is, it works best when it can feed something else down the line. And I think the noticing and the processing and the writing, um, 
is always indicative of a reaching for more. So there always has to be like, once you think you've finished one cycle of, um, you know, no, gathering, um, in observing, gathering, um, you know, writing, and then kind of releasing, um, I think that you have to land back on, you know, square one. So if there's like four steps, you have to, in order to actually complete the whole cycle, you have to go back to step one. Mm. So I think that's indicative of always like reaching forward for it. Um, where I think letting go comes in is, I think I've also been able to experiment with this a lot, you know, in creating these rooms of my own, either through like a physical space or through walking, um, which is that when I have kind of even a moment of, <clears throat> Um, clearing my mind in order to properly observe something for a poem or a piece. Um, I try not to, letting go, first of all, I think means a lot of letting go of expectations again, which is something that I'm constantly learning to do. I have by no means mastered it, but I think inherent to that is like some kind of active play. So, or, you know, or even free association. So, you know, I'll be walking and, um, noticing things and allowing the mind to go where, um, you know, to value what it is that the mind, uh, to, to go where it wants and then value what it is that the mind has like settled on observing, I think is a really powerful skill to develop because most of the time I, for me anyway, I find myself actually stopping myself from, do, going through with the full through line of that thought and seeing it to its end or seeing where it might come um might end up and I think that's also not useful for process um <clears throat> and again I think this ties to what we were talking about in terms of scarcity and abundance because if you're beginning from a standpoint where you think you must have the most perfect idea um, in order to write or do something, then you probably will never be able to, you know, manifest it um, because you're just sitting there being worried about what the consequences will be when you haven't even begun. So I think that's a really important thing that I've been able to learn um, by practicing this idea of letting go, which is, <clears throat> you know, in whatever ways I can, um, in brainstorming or in walking or even in writing a draft itself, just allowing myself to move <clears throat> through the lines, even if they're crap, because that's the only way that the work will come out. Um, I just had a, this is what I was discussing earlier, talking about noticing and observing. And um, I just want to point out there's a difference in doing that in person, like going for a walk or going, you know, going somewhere. It's a difference in social media where you know, no one's going to remember a comment you wrote like yeah. ten years, like a year ago. So there's there's a society thing where it's like as writers, you do have to get out there and observe. So. Yeah, it's a totally different process with the computer. Yeah, uh, and through the the media and through our phones, I'm noticing we're not really. I mean, we're there, but we're not really quite. We're still again having that split tension. Yeah, and there's a all this kind of thing. It's good yeah. to be in person. Yeah, you know, it's like you know, if yeah. you see somebody that you haven't seen for a while, you're going to have a memory. From when you saw them, not on online. Yeah. Yeah. I I think that's interesting too. I try to, you know, I 
it's like for for the purposes of craft let's say um it really is different or and difficult because you're not present um and at the same time for the purposes of being aware of you know i think for for in a lot of ways like we always do have to be a little bit aware of where our work falls into the context of all of the other things that are going on, not even in the literary world, but just in the world in general. And so for that reason, I found, you know, social media um, and, you know, other kinds of media helpful because it does raise awareness of certain, you know, of, of other ways that people can speak truth through power. Yeah. Um, so, you know, for example, like the Black Lives Matter movement, um, all, all these other kinds of injustices that are happening um, recently, I think, like, I mean, to give you an example, the last um, very long span of time that I had been sort of scrolling through social media and then suddenly kind of lost track of time by doing so has been through, it has been by going through posts about, um, you know, the occupation of Sheikh Jarrah than the neighborhood, um, you know, by, uh, and, and like the harm and injustice being done um, against the Palestinian people. And so in that way, that's been, you know, like me being able to, I, there's so many levels of presence that I cannot feel, um, but there are ways for me <clears throat> to witness their speaking out of their truth to power and you know in in the ways that we can exist not even just as poets and creatives but just as people on this larger collaborative scale um being able to balance that and find ways to access that collaborative power and communication and and sharing of truths um i think is really important because then we can each <clears throat> you know like if strength is in numbers and we can each link our own truths and hopefully get enough numbers to speak to all of the internet connected ways um, that oppressive powers are connected, right? So mm -hmm. I, I hope that makes sense. But like, I think what I'm trying to say is that the balance between the individual and the collective in this way is also a really important dynamic to, um, for, for each individual to figure out how to balance on their own. Yeah, but, I'm not but, saying that I have found like the golden ratio between scrolling on social media yeah. and disconnecting. Yeah, but the, the technology is great thing. that things are, documented people can everyone has a camera now so injustices yeah. like things can you know there's more accountability and hopefully in the next few years you know things might change i guess yeah like the body cams and cops and a lot i've created a whole new culture a whole new accountability a whole new aspect to the problem you know and and the, and sometimes even when the, there's video it's like people are still not addressing the issue but that's a whole other matter, but at least you now I was brought the conversation to the foreground. But even like I was thinking about how, you know, back in the day, even before we had the prevalence of smartphones and all that, we had, you know, um, uh, media, newspapers, and all this kind of stuff that people would be like, oh, you know, you're zoning out reading the newspaper. But of course, there's always, there's always Luddites and criticisms and always counter narratives. But at the same time, you know, technology definitely has revolutionized the world and, uh, smartphones have brought a whole new uh, ex aspect to the experience of connecting globally and the world is flat and, and all this kind of stuff and how 
we're able to connect with people around the world and their struggles um, yeah. and be able to have a whole new level of, of communion with them. Yeah. Yeah. And also, I just want to remind listeners about the halfway point. This is the Truth to Power Show and Radio for Brooklyn. We're here with co-host Colt Malison and guest Nadia um, Ahmad. Uh, so why don't we listen to a little, why don't you introduce a little bit of your writing and we can listen to a little bit of some poems. Uh, we'll spend about five minutes doing that. Um, and then we can return to the conversation. So you can set this up and then read and then we can discuss a little bit of that. Great. Yeah. So um, <clears throat> I have a couple of poems. Um, I think one that I'll read is... Um, Let's see. <clears throat> I guess thinking about, I mean, just um, picking up on uh, this idea of struggle, I suppose, um, and truth, truth, speaking truth when it's difficult. Um, there is, there's a poem that I've got. Uh, it's in ghazal form um, about rage. So maybe we'll just start with that one. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> for your Sunday morning. <laughs> anyway, uh, it's called, um, it's a gozzle, it's called Beneath the Rage. Strength of Alderwood submerged shows beneath the rage. <clears throat> Reach into water, she who knows beneath the rage. Her lungs churn, burning sifts ashes from dust to dust. Gather blessings, but count her woes beneath the rage. Blind stone buried deep, darkness holds it close, then far. Is it caution? No, something else grows beneath the rage. Examine the patient, spin more questions, dangle and release. What did you forego beneath the rage? Scholar, adorn you in lapis, but look, center red. O oh, poet, it already rose beneath the rage. Um, my next poem, uh, maybe I'll read a couple more, um, because I've been thinking a lot about Ramadan, I, I think I decided to pull a couple of poems, uh, from this practice of trying to write, uh, you know, approximately a poem a day during Ramadan over the past few years. So this is from a couple of years ago. It's called Simit. Simit. I have never seen anyone carry a plate to the masjid. I had eaten simit today, a kind of Turkish bagel, as the woman in the bakery explained to me. Even the writing of it here will no longer make my eating secret. I have returned to the world by eating, in a way. Eating during roja does not feel as whole, does not feel as holy, perhaps because it is such a secret. On the one hand, I do not want anyone to know. On the other, I do not want it to be a secret that makes me feel withered and weak. I eat as a secret prayer for my beloved. I pray around in returning throughout the day to the world and back like a circle. The simit was a circle and the plate the same shape as a simit. The sesame seeds sprinkled off with the crumbs as I ate in the back room of our office the one advantage to slow business being the quiet that it brings. A secret I keep selfishly. I love it when business is slow. I am a writer and a hermit. 
this world is not frugal enough for me. And I'll read one or two others from the Ramadan um, poems. I'm just pulling up one from, I'll read one short one. Um, sorry, excuse me, one, one more from the Ramadan uh, series and then one uh, short other poem. So this is from last year. It doesn't have a title, but it's just, uh, it notes it was day eight of Ramadan last year, um, 2020. I take my notebook out to the steps to write a poem, but have to put it down. A car pulls up, a neighbor's hello, a story of people she works with of COVID-19. The smells of food have been sitting on the air. Then Ma's voice steps through the window, asking her to wait, sister, I'll give you some dinner. We're about to eat soon. While everything simmers, Ma raises the window screen saying, I can't see you very well. When the cat tries to jump out, she continues, I don't like touching him too much. She calls me in to shoo him away. Once the food is packaged, I walk it the few feet over, offer it, hands extended and taking a step back. Our neighbor receives it through the doorway. I hold my breath, having forgotten my mask. Thank you, my love. God bless. Maybe the poem was there between our hands. Bismillah. I drink the first sip. And I'll close with one last poem called Khoda Hafiz. I don't think I actually wrote this during Ramadan, but it does reference it. So <clears throat> perhaps we can officially say that I am obsessed. Khoda <laughs> um, Hafiz. My uncle says that Khoda Hafiz is the wrong way to call out goodbye, hello, when you make a call to namaz, we, because we don't call it Salat. We call to see if the moon has risen above our broadened horizon lines. The broadband horizon lines are jammed with cloud static. Loud, we call another uncle across the street, not sure if the moon posted a status update instead of calling before God called on us to make the call to wherever we call home. My other uncle says that a different uncle says that this uncle will call you out on everything and insist that an elephant has five legs. Another uncle laughs because this uncle will call the trunk a leg. He's pulling a leg. He has a leg up. He makes the calls. He calls the shots. He calls us to God during Ramzan. We don't call it Ramadan. Nights when the moon calls peace from its halo, wrapped from the partition in the sky, I wonder. I don't know what to call it either. Something so inscrutable that the call falls so short of a calling. Call me Ishmael, Ismail, here my name is his caller. I call back, it's a missed call. On the voicemail I leave, I say, Khoda, God, Allah Hafiz. Thank you, thank you. Poetry snaps, yay. (laughs) Yeah, thanks for the snaps. Yeah, thank you, thank you. So, um, yeah, also uh, we asked a question about uh, when you're teaching people to to write and and you're, you're sharing your principal discipline, with others, what do you hope listeners receive from you? And you mentioned a little bit about your writing workshop, your writing life. Um, is that still going on or is that still something that people can look up, your writing life? Yeah, uh, so Your Writing Life is um, a workshop that I've taught for the past um, 
couple of years now. And you can um, find ways to contact me about it or, or stay updated about it um, by uh, most directly, I guess, going to my website, um, Nadia Q. Ahmad, uh, N-A-D-I-A-Q-A-H-M-A-D.com. Um, and so there I describe that um, this, this workshop is called Your Writing Life because I really want to center this idea that um, you know, it, it, it's, it's, it's hopefully it's self-explanatory. It's your writing life, you know, or your creative life, um, no matter what anybody else says. And what I found, especially in my own experience, and also what I continue to find, is that whenever I feel that a writer's block um, is kind of setting in for me, I try, I've tried to develop a practice where I attempt, instead of feeling overwhelmed by this thing called writer's block, um, which is such like a weird, mythical, ephemeral, obscure thing, um, I try instead to break it down into different elements um, and identify which element or elements are the things that are actually blocking me or creating an obstacle. So that might be fear, that might be time, that might be scarcity, that might be, um, you know, uh, lack of, you maybe I need to work in a different medium, you know, mm. um, in order to, to combat that. So the workshop, I've taught it both as a one-off um, as well as like a six-part series where uh, in each session, um, I kind of facilitate discussions and prompts where I ask writers to really investigate what it is when they say like, oh, I have writer's block, to really challenge them and myself to, to say, okay, if it's, you know, what if we, what, what if we weren't allowed to name this as this like really strange big monster called writer's block? You know, what if we had to name it um, by its distinctive or like essential characteristics? What really is the thing that's blocking you? Um, and so I think that does two things. Number one, I think we've been able to create a, you know, community of people who can affirm that, yes, we're writers and we have problems um, with, with, and challenge, not problems, but challenges with writing. Um, and number two, I think slowly over time, it's begun to develop this, um, you know, in creating that community, it's been able to help everyone realize that really just what makes you a writer is that you write and you don't have to be uh, held to other people's standards of what, um, you know, what you're supposed to produce and how you're supposed to produce it. And usually these things that we think are blocks are not coming from the, you know, us internally, but they're coming from external forces that are trying to kind of limit us and our work and our voice. Um, so the workshop uh, is not going on at this very moment, but if, um, you know, I do it independently as well as in partnership with any collaborating organizations that wish to, you know, host a writing workshop. So I'm totally open to conversations about that if anybody's interested um, and looking forward to plan more definitely, um, you know, in, in the near future uh, later this year. Um, and one of your uh, pre-questions, uh, you, you, you got the idea that finding variation through reputation or discovering new things from repeating the same works or experiences. So do you do that on your, you talk about, you know, writing every day through Ramadan. Do you, do you write some of the same topics over and over sometimes to, to get? 
you know, before. Oh, yeah. Um, yes. So during, yeah, I think, I think Ramadan is an interesting example because it does come back every year. Um, and because of that, a lot of the same topics are, you know, a lot of the topics are going to be given. Like, um, <laughs> usually my first few poems each of these months, I've been able to do this, I think, since 20. 15 or 16 and so going back I've noticed that the first few poems of the month like almost without fail are always about you know they, they have something to do with like hunger and the sudden awareness of um, this different state of mind because without you know particular meals marking your time during the day like there's this sudden strange awareness of like how either fast or usually slow time goes um, without having to do that and also other themes are just like the physical sensations and how they um, switch. So like the first few years, you know, those first few poems have always been about um, just how the body is adjusting. And it's funny because you kind of, you might think that like, oh, okay, if you've done it for a, a couple of years, like you might think that somehow you turn into like some kind of pro um, after several years, but you don't, you know, because it just comes back around and you start from day one again, you know, it's not like this Ramadan, you know, we're almost nearing the end and it's not like the next one, I'll start day one of next year's Ramadan at the state that I am at, at day 30 of this year, or day 29 of this year. Uh, it's really just, you're starting from one again. So that's, that's a really interesting thing to kind of, um, observe in, in the way that the writing has changed. Because I think it also signals that most processes or all, all things that are, a, you know, what we say, like, it's a process. Um, it doesn't mean that you're necessarily going to even arrive somewhere. I think we have to, like, let go again of that notion that we're gonna, you know, that we have to have arrived somewhere. You know, maybe it's just the process is that like struggle process um, reaching towards truth is and has to be a daily and continuous you know regular and continuous thing well i guess it's not with, like one day we're going to be able to master it with the repetition i kind of took that as like kind of a process too to you know do a write a scene or write a poem like and do it 20 times in 20 different versions like remember in an art class I took, we draw our hand like every day, you know, for like a oh, three months. So I, I was wondering if it, the repetition like that, if it's, if you meant like that to, to kind of do lots of versions of the same work. Yeah. Yeah. That's a really good point. Um, lots of versions of the same thing. Yes. I, that is totally the case. And I think, um, you know, no, no two of my poems about you know, that sudden awareness of like the shifting of the mind, body, spirit thing um, that I mentioned before, the connection, you know, no two poems about that are going to be the same. And I think that's also one of the beauties of it too, that, you know, we can, um, you know, we, we can uh, not become bored by ourselves, I guess, <laughs> you know. Yeah. Also, it seems like, um, you know, when we think about writing and writer's block, a lot of times it's like, the, the you're talking about external forces and how the reader, the proposed reader, could sometimes interfere. We want to kind of we're worried about whether or not the reader will connect with it. At least in my experience, we're worried about what is the reader understanding? Is the reader kind of am I communicating to the reader, the imagined reader? So in that regard, um, 
like uh, you know audience. We think about audience. We think audience generally. Who who who's who do you imagine is the proposed audience and and how do you kind of navigate um, for people who may not be familiar with all the customs? You know, do you imagine that the person who's reading it is not familiar and you try to? Because I did notice some uh, explanation of some things, or do you imagine oh they're they're fluent and I can kind of or how do you how do you navigate that? Yeah, and to what extent do you feel the need to be like let me explain this or something like that? Yeah. That's a great question. I think a lot of times it's, I've been very lucky. I, I hesitate to say that I've been lucky um, or, you know, I, I, um, I'm trying to find the right word. I think it's uh, kind of frustrating maybe to say that I've been lucky to find spaces where um, I don't have to necessarily explain yeah. um, that, that, kind of presumes that the system is set up uh in a way you know that, that the norm is like the opposite of that oh um, yeah because people now so, can can as you're saying with the technology they can look up things if they need to you know, yeah, they can look up the, trust the audience you know totally totally so uh, but i think what that has done for me um and so more specifically like some of the um institutions or, or groups or organizations that i'm thinking about when i say that um have been you know um, Queensbound, like I mentioned before, obviously, uh, but also the Asian American Writers Workshop is a great uh, resource. Quayley Journal, um, Vona, like some of the ones that you know were mentioned when um, when uh, you read the introduction before. Some of those spaces have been very instrumental for me to, um, in a way, think or start from a position where somebody who is like me or of my background um, is someone that I can even consider my audience from the get-go. Mm. I think it's been very useful to say, hey, you know, there's clearly um, a whole readership of, of people of color or of Muslim people or of Asian Americans um, or of even just Queens-based people who can be an audience. And I think if it weren't for those, a lot of those spaces and collaborative projects, um, I wouldn't even have been able to consider, you know, that, uh, that I could write for someone, for people who are like me. Um, having said that, I think that my aim is always trying to write for myself first, which is also obviously hard because of what you know, the divided attention and the anxiousness about, you know, reception of the work that I mentioned before. But ideally, yeah, my, you know, my um, kind of first reader would be someone to whom I don't necessarily have to explain. And even, even if that is because they, the, the reader knows it already, or even if it's because the reader doesn't know the reference and can look it up. I think mm. in either of those cases, um, it's, it, it, it helps. I don't know, maybe, maybe it helps us get to the truth faster, right? The truth that we're trying to, to write or convey. Yeah. There's so much more important things than to pander to, you know, an audience at the same time, you know, balancing that out with, you know, uh, not giving too much like 
work or homework for a reader. But at the same time, you know, you kind of explain in context. I think people understand what's going on. And you're kind of trusting the reader is one of the major things I think I got out of that is that and trusting yourself to be able to communicate what you need to in the space you have. Um, and it's good exactly. to be able to, yeah, yeah. It's, you don't want to kind of um, make any assumptions about that. But I just want to quickly mention a few quick, uh, quick uh, announcements. Um, this is Radio for Brooklyn. Radio for Brooklyn is a 501c nonprofit organization. Um, you know, COVID-19 is, uh, is obviously disrupting everyone's lives, although we're starting to get slowly uh, returned to normalcy. Radio for Brooklyn is no exception. We want to thank you um, for every effort you've made to, the audience has made to um, help us support us by listening. Um, with most of our audience team evaporated, we need your help. Realize we've been hurting too, but if you can afford a small donation, it would go a long way to help us stay in the air. Here are three ways you can help. First, you can go on one-time donation, monthly pledge, go to rayfrooklyn.org slash donate. There you can find some great t-shirts, mugs, and other swag. We'd like to send you to say thanks. Uh, you can also use your phone to take our RFB gift five. That's number five two four four three two one. It only takes a moment, and you'll be able to use your digital off your donation. Um, finally, if you shop on Amazon, go to amazon.com slash smile. Register Radio for Brooklyn is a nonprofit you wish to support. When you do present your sales, we'll go to um, Radio for Brooklyn. It'll cost you nothing. No donation is too big or too small. Whether you can afford or make a huge difference. We uh, thank you from the bottom of our hearts, and we wish our listeners health and happiness as we continue to weather the storm together. Um, if you're listening on your uh, computer, please consider downloading our free mobile apps for iPhone and Android, available on the app stores for iPhone and Google Play Store for Android. Uh, please be sure, be sure to subscribe to our monthly newsletter, latest news about our news programming, upcoming RFB events. You can sign up at radioforbrooklyn.org slash newsletter. Um, so, yeah, yeah. So as we start to wind down, uh, any last thoughts or last uh, comments? I know you mentioned, we mentioned um, some of the books that you felt, uh, asked the question, not counting your own work, what is one or two books, uh, one or a few books that are songs, plays, poems that you wish everyone in the world could experience. Uh, talk a little bit about that as we start to wind down and then we can uh, get some of your contact information. Yeah, go ahead. Sure, yeah. Um, so a couple of the works that I mentioned off the top of my head were um, Song of Solomon by Toni Morrison, the novel Song of Solomon. Um, also Nikki Finney's, um, I, I had cited a speech, her 2011 uh speech for the National Book Award in Poetry. Um, that's on YouTube, but I, I think a copy of it is also published in the back of uh, the book Head Off and Split, which I it's a poetry collection that I also really love. I think both writers talk, you know, their images are so striking. Um, and that's, that's one of the, you know, and the way that they kind of intertwine image and really rich and um, thought provoking and um, just masterful language. Um, those are lessons that I try to return to over and over again and, sh and share with, um, you know, other writers who I come into contact with. Um, you can, as a sort of segue into the last bit, you can find uh, works by these writers at your local library. <laughs> yeah. Library. Thank you. Uh, and um, having said that, I will say that there's a, just a quick announcement that um, I'm doing uh a reading at um, like a virtual reading at the Queens Library at their open mic um, 
on May 20th in the evening. I think it's 6 p.m. Eastern. Yes, yes. So the so queenslibrary.org. The queenslibrary.org and uh, just put in open mic. You should be able to find it. Also, I'll be on Facebook uh, doing a uh, Great Weather for Media reading on Wiss Wednesday at 7.30. Uh, you can go to Great Weather for Media's page on Facebook, um, and then you can find out. I'll be doing it for 10 minutes only, 7.30 to 7.40, and they'll have the, the, they'll have the uh, recording up later. So thanks so much, Nadia. All right, thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks so much. Very good. Thank you. All right. So just about then, 10 seconds or five seconds. All right. Bye. Uh, Thank you.